everybody. Welcome to Red Shirts and Runabouts. This is episode 29. I am Derek, filling in as the lead host for Greg, who could not join us this evening. And I've got my buddy Jeremy with me. Hello, hello. Welcome back, man. It's just the two of us tonight. Just the two of us. <laughs> you know, I've been listening to Will Smith all day, actually, in my free time. <laughs> it's true. Um, anyway, so we don't really have any news, so we're just going to dive right into the main topics, which are discussions on the two original series episodes from season one, Mud's Women and Balance of Terror. And if you're wondering why those two episodes, because you're just tuning in, we have decided to try a interesting format where we will review the top four rated and the bottom four rated episodes from the same season of star trek the original series and pair up one good with one bad and the ratings are based off of imdb so is this the the top like the the number two episode and then the number two from the bottom episode is that how this works correct yes okay yes so um we have mud's women which is actually the third episode of the series to air um and then we have balance of terror which is uh later episode eight um so yeah i guess we'll start with mud's women because we're going to do the bad episode first and then the good episode the first i would like to share my very strange experience with balance of terror not going into the plot of the episode but just how i watched it please in that i so i watched and I was I was into it, but I was so drained from watching Mud's Women that I was like on the edge of consciousness. And at the about fifty percent mark, I I totally passed out. But it was on Netflix and auto playing uh, to the next episode. <laughs> so I uh, from looking back at what I saw, I woke up about an hour later. It was still playing, and I thought I was only out for a second, so I just kept watching. Uh, but it was the the next episode, and then I was just like having such a hard time following what was happening. I I fell asleep again, and then woke back up, and it was another episode. But I was now so groggy at this point that I was just like, okay, I got to get to the end of this episode, and just nothing made sense, and I had no idea what was happening. And I think the second episode I watched was Shore Leave, and I forgot what the the third one was. But then I looked at the time. And it was like four hours after I had started watching Star Trek. And I was like, God damn it. And I just like got frustrated and went to bed and finished it this morning. Wow, man, that is an ordeal. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a really confusing. I was like, I have this is so complicated. I have this like new characters have shown up and I don't know where anyone is. But no, it's <laughs> it's just those two ships in that episode. There's no no new planets, no new characters. So I guess you're lucky that it, you didn't end up waking up in the middle of an episode where Mark Leonard was playing Sarek and you had him playing just two completely different roles. That would have been fun. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that when we get there. I, I was like, oh man, it's the same guy who plays this character later on. And then I was like, wait, no, that's he plays Sarek. He's that's Spock's dad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll get to the details on Balance of Terror. Um, that's a fun story, man. I I hate autoplay on things like netflix and all that so there's a prime example of, of why i just want to like i want to tell it when i'm ready to watch the next episode i usually like it until it shames me with the are you still watching arrested development i'm like yeah netflix i am don't leave me alone <laughs> the next episode Stop judging me fair enough anyway 
Mud's women. Mud's women. So um, a, a bit confused. So, you know, the original series, of course, was produced and aired and released in, in weird orders and things like that. So I apologize if my numbers are not lining up here. I guess this was the sixth episode actually released um, of the original series, but it's also called episode 1X03. So very confusing. But uh, okay. yeah, Mud's women. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, as some people do. It actually might be one of my least favorite episodes of Star Trek. It it was very much to me like what was the other bad one that we watched last week? Oh, the um, <laughs> um, the alternative factor was that the one with the like the two guys from parallel dimensions and dark matter and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. the The problem with Mud's women, aside from Mud just being a evil person uh is that you like you just get the trick like right away and then you're just like exhaustingly waiting for for it to end because you know you know within the first minutes that like this guy's a con man these women are like his sex slaves and he's it's like you just know what's going to happen and it's boring because the whole time you're just like all right get it over with yeah, I think that's fair. Um, people are get really obsessed with Harry Mudd, and you know a lot of people wanted him to be the antagonist in Star Trek Into Darkness when people were being told it was not Khan. Um, and of course, he was cast and played by Rain Wilson in Star Trek Discovery. I've never been interested in Harry Mudd until Rain Wilson's portrayal in Discovery. He finally made the character compelling for me. Not that I had any problem with the original actor. It's just he's cheesy he's over the top he just doesn't really seem likable he's sleazy he's and he doesn't really seem competent yeah like he's he's not charming enough to root for and he's not like he's not a lovable rogue he's more just kind of a dirtbag who the show clearly wants you to believe is a lovable rogue because, like, there's that one Next Generation episode where there's the guy that shows up that's some, like, freewheeling merchant and he's got a very, like, you know, Robin Hood vibe. And and it's, like, a very interesting character. And the crimes that he commits that he's trying to keep under wraps are minimal enough that it's like, oh, you scamp. I, I kind of root for you still. But Harry Mudd's a human trafficker that gets women addicted to drugs. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ, this guy's a scum of the earth or whatever yeah, more or less from. yeah and uh you, you know, i don't think you've seen his later episodes um nope. this is i mean i think this is as good as it gets for him if that's wait there's a thing. worse harry mud original series episode i'm not sure if the episode itself is worse but he's just worse right really? like i'm surprised He's I assume just... the the Rain Wilson portrayal was based off of who he was in these episodes, and and I mean the Rain Rain Wilson's character in Discovery was a a murderer and a sociopath, but he was like fun. I don't know. That's the thing. So you know, I don't know Rain Wilson's process. I can't speak to that. But if he got inspiration from the original Harry Mudd, it couldn't have been very much. Because Rain Wilson's version of the character is drastically different. And like I said, the, the first time I've really cared for the character at all. Um, 
the Harry Mudd in the original series, maybe it's because it's the 60s, is just too campy for me. He's too over the top. He's too just not believable that he could pull this stuff off. Yeah. You know, versus in, in Discovery where you've got, you know, he's doing time travel and he's killing people and he's sarcastic about it, you know, and starts going a little crazy at times. I mean, he, he had that cool helmet. The, the Andorian helmet. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Um, you know, but when he's in the, the Klingon prison ship, you know, he'll do anything it takes to survive. He's ruthless, but he's very intelligent. Whereas the one in the original series, especially here in Mud's Women, is, yeah, he's he's more like an infomercial salesman. No offense to anybody out there who is an infomercial salesman, but it doesn't come off as like a great villain. It just comes off as like he's a salesman. Yeah. Right. He's selling a product, which in this case are the women. Right. And there's a little bit of trickery about it because they take these pills that make them seem more attractive than they really are, quote unquote. Um, and that's that's the whole thing. That's the con. It's not like it's, you know, Ocean's Eleven out here or something like that. One well, that I mean, they're supposed to be perfectly beautiful women and they're they're good looking and everything but they they portray them almost like the uh the orion women with like the pheromone powers or something like in in the fiction of this episode they're just supposed to be very sexy but whenever bones is looking at him they like put vaseline on the camera and like play twinkly noises like he's being hypnotized it's like well they're not the you know it's like calm down well, I think that's supposed to do with the the Venus pill that they're taking is supposed to have some type of effect. I mean, I don't know. It's it's a little confusing, right? And it's it's a one of the cinematography issues with the original series is that, you know, if someone is supposed to appear extra attractive, then they've got, you know, the softer lens with the lights and the glowing and the sparkle and, you know, that kind of thing. Um yeah. And so they all get that quite a bit. And you're right. The men just can't seem to keep their heads on straight. And then they seem to negate. I mean, they they do indicate that there's some additional effect of this like Venus drug when it starts making Bones's instruments. I mean, I mean we know his instrument is going haywire, but when it makes his uh, computer instruments go haywire. <laughs> zing. Uh, zing. Zing-a-ding. Um, but then at the end... They give them fake ones and they turn beautiful, seemingly negating like like they made it seem like all of the Venus drug was a placebo at the end of the episode. Yeah. So that's always bothered me because it seems like they decided at the end of the episode that they were going to have a lesson to teach everybody like a after school show. And the lesson is that, you know. You're, you're really as beautiful as you believe you are. And, you know, that kind of self-confidence and a good self-image kind of thing is more powerful than, than the drug is, I think, is the message they're trying to put across. But then it does lead the question of, well, does the drug ever work anyway? Or was that also a con? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, the, the one kind of narrative they were building they just negate the reality of and then it you look back and it's like well then what was happening to all of these people it's like what clearly they were addicted to it because it ran out after a certain time so it's not like the drug gave them the confidence to be supernaturally beautiful it was doing something 
and then like she i mean it's it's one thing to think like she got placeboed effect and and was more confident about herself but you know her skin cleared up and her clothes got tighter and she got <laughs> makeup and it's like that's not you don't get placebo new dress it's just like i don't know it just doesn't make sense yeah, it's a little on the nose because um, you're right. There are physical changes to these women, but it's supposed to be that you know they they now have confidence in themselves, right? And that it, the pill never really did anything. It was really just how they how they felt. Yeah, it is funny though. Like looking back on '60s beauty standards, that it's like these are okay looking women, but it's it's not like I would look at any of these three women and go like wow this is the most beautiful woman i've ever seen it's like oh she's looked like she looks like a a seven (laughs) it's like and not not to be rude or anything but it's just like i don't know there's 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 something interesting because they they just look like they look like a younger version of somebody's mom i think it's just with like the hair and and the general aesthetic of the time it's just like it's it's so strange to see how that whole thing has changed but it's it's same with all of the male characters on the show. It's like nobody would ever buy uh, any of these guys as as male leads on a TV show anymore because they just all look like, you know, someone's uncle. <laughs> it's like <laughs> everyone on 60s TV looked like someone's aunt or uncle from the 90s. Well, don't forget these women were also, you know, supposed to be meeting these minors who haven't seen a woman in a couple of years, right? And so at that point, I think, you know... They they just want to have somebody, yeah. And, you know that that helps a little bit. Um, so there are lithium crystals powered ships in the original series, and then for next generation, it's dilithium. Um. So okay, dilithium is used on the original Enterprise later, uh, especially in the movies. That's a that's a thing. It's a little unclear when the switch happens. But hmm. but yeah, I think part of the idea is that the dilithium crystals, they have these chambers that allow it to regenerate itself. And I think the lithium crystals were more limited if, or something like that. I can't quite remember the details, but it may have been as simple as they just started using a different name. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting this episode that the stakes were just like, the ship's running out of batteries. We have to do something about it. It's like... That just feels like such a non. I've, it's in in all other Trek instances, you never have this kind of like, ah, oh, we're running out of batteries and we're dead in the water if we don't get some new batteries. It's like, oh, that seems like such a, I don't know, mundane. It's like the the Enterprise ran out of gas. Let's hit a gas station. It happens. I mean, it's it's definitely a thing that happens on Voyager. Um, time to time since they're lost in the Delta Quadrant, right? So they have to get resources. And so they That's true. they, they yeah. shut down power to certain you know decks and parts of the ship and things things like that, which which was cool. I liked thinking that there were some limitations that we haven't figured everything out. But... Never see that on DS9, though, where it's like um, DS9... I, I mean, the, the station's in shambles when the series starts and O'Brien really has to put it completely back together. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of system flickers, but it, it's like at a core fuel or energy. It never seemed like the issue was we are 
the DS9 is out of gas and we need more <laughs> space station batteries. That's a good point. But it's also, it's not traveling at warp or anything either. That's true. You know, I don't know. I'm not an expert in uh, space station engineering, so. Um, but not? yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a lackluster episode, though, Mud's Women. It's, uh, it's a very basic story, like we've said. There's not a whole lot else that goes into it. Um, at the end of the day, the women are happy, the men are happy, and Mud still kind of gets the short end of the stick, which is a little weird because if any if everybody ends up happy and everyone's doing what they want to do then eh. when it when it's all said and done what did he do what like did he do anything wrong or did he not do anything wrong like it was always unclear to me if he was like really selling these women or if he, it was more of a mutual relationship where they were looking for men and he was you know the middleman Oof. I mean, that seems pretty generous. I mean, it, at the end of the day, he forced Kirk into a position where he was sex trafficking for lithium crystals. I mean, he he got the crystals and the miners got a woman and that was very transactional and they all seemed to be kind of like, okay with it. I don't know. That's the it's problem, right? Because everybody seems okay with it at the end. It, it feels weird because it takes away the at least some of the negative connotation of what the episode starts out as. Cause at the beginning you're supposed to feel like, well, mud's just trying to sell these women to strangers on a planet. Like that's really messed up. And all that matters is their physical appearance. And so that's really shallow. And at the end of the episode, you find, you know, the, the message is, well, the beauty is really the confidence from within and the women and the men are happy because they get to have a companion now. And, you know, so like there's a happy ending. So it's a very, confusing feeling yeah i guess i mean that we see the the two a little more uh i don't know the little more down to clown women just like start rubbing all over those miners um and then the the one who's questions the more like skeptical one when she actually is addressed with the realities of living on this planet that like she's trapped in this bunker for most of the time and as soon as you step outside you're as good as dead and all this stuff and it's like we never really resolve that concern for her like she she regains the confidence in herself which you know gold star that's that's nice and everything but she's still trapped on a planet with these garbage guys that are fighting over women and they don't it's not like he fell in love with her she's a piece of property that fell in his lap and and he traded crystals for her. so it's like it's like they're okay with it for now but mm -hmm. like tomorrow she still has to deal with this reality that she's marooned on a planet with someone who sees her as a sex object it's just like gross basically yeah um I mean, the, the men, I think, want a little more than that. You know, they're looking for someone to, to take care of them and and be a companion as well. But it is a very shallow relationship. It's definitely very um, old way of thinking, right? I mean, it's it's old way of thinking, but also he got mad when she started to cook for him. That was a weird twist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was weird. It's like, hey, I only cook for me. And it's like, well, what is what's happening? Yeah, that was it's like. Are you being chivalrous or are you being guarded? <laughs> I mean, the the point they were trying to push with with that moment was just like he's not used to having someone else, and she's 
expecting this very specific lifestyle that she's clearly not going to get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was just like everything was <laughs> muddy. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, so some interesting factual information about the episode. Um, so Harry Mudd only shows up in three episodes, two in the original series and one in the animated series. So <laughs> even though he's widely considered to be like the recurring character of the original series, uh, as far as like antagonists are concerned, he was really only on two legitimate episodes and one animated episode. So, you know, something to kind of keep in mind from that standpoint. This episode, though, like it, hate it, love it, whatever, um, actually is an old episode. The script for this episode was pitched both times the show was up for a pilot. And they went with the cage, of course, as the original pilot and then where no man has gone before. But this this was around for both of those goes. And can you imagine if that had been the episode made for one of the pilots? I can barely imagine the episode was made as an episode. Ah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so th- this is this is an old one. This is one of Gene Roddenberry's original scripts. Yeah. And you can kind of tell that it's there's there's just there's one trick to it. The whole narrative. It's just like Mud's got a secret. And and then the whole episode is just finding out what the, the secret is. And it just like takes forever. It's very boring. Yeah, it's a little lackluster. Certainly not one of the more exciting episodes. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that that's all I have for this one. It's it's boring. Yeah. It's mud. So it's somewhat iconic because mud has become kind of a pop culture aspect of the show for whatever reason. But I'll take Rain Wilson's interpretation any day. Yeah. Yeah. At least he's got like kind of a motivation rain wilson was was trying to save his own skin and he was trying to hide from his uh the woman whose father bought him a moon and but at the same time he was trying to to get everything he wanted and and all this stuff so it's like he had clear motivation and he had a lot of ups and downs whereas this this portrayal of mud he's just you know he's running a con and he gets his way in the grand scheme of things which is just I don't know. That's the this aside from knowing what was going to happen from the beginning, just the lack of resolution to anything at the end where everyone just kind of shrugs and goes, I guess this is fine. And then they all move on with their lives. It's just like, well, what is the point of any of this? It's like no one's no one's really happy, but nobody's like dealing with anything. It's just over. Yeah, let's talk about the other one. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, as as a small note, though, since I, I know that you're you're new to the original series, so Harry Mudd's wife, the woman from the Discovery episode, whose father, you know, bought the moon and all that, uh, she does return in Harry Mudd's second episode, I Mud, in season two of the original series, and uh, so there's the, so the Discovery episode really had some nice nice moments to tie into that. Mm. But the Discovery took place before that, so that yes. was kind of a prequel. Right, cool. exactly. Yep. It'll be yep. interesting to see. Because in, I'm actually watching them in chronological order. Yeah, yeah, it's a little different different in your case. Um, but all right, so next, The Balance of Terror. So the 14th episode released out of all 744. Um, the memory alpha tagline for this one really just summarizes it really w- very well. 
The Enterprise battles a Romulan ship suspected of destroying outposts near the neutral zone. And that's that's the episode. <laughs> yeah, this this episode kind of blew my mind. Okay. Um, because I had never thought about Romulan cloaking technology in the context of submarines, which was clearly the, the parallel they were drawing with this episode. This was totally a... a a normal ship battling a submarine and and to see it contextualized that way like i just never thought about it that way whereas this this is such like a perfect like hunt for red october type story Hmm. and it's like they're they're firing their torpedoes and using them like depth charges and they're when they go into cloak they're they're much more vulnerable than we see them later with cloaking technology. And that like, we know you always have to have your shields down to go into cloak, but in this, it seems like when they were cloaked, they were just, they could only move. They couldn't fire or aim or anything. Yeah. It, it really set the tone for what ended up you know being in the movies, the undiscovered country with the Klingons and things like that. I mean, this episode laid the groundwork for what cloaking technology really was going to be in the Star Trek universe. Uh, You had to have your shields down while you were cloaked. You could not fire while cloaked. That was the unique thing about Kang's ship in uh, the Undiscovered Country is a bird of prey that could fire while cloaked. They weren't supposed to be able to do that. And so the the naval aspects, I guess, weren't strange for me just because I always kind of looked at the original series as that kind of naval aspect. You look at the Wrath of Khan, for example, in the in you know the Mutara Nebula. It's very naval. It's very ship to ship kind of stuff. There's no like you know fighters or quick maneuvers like there are in in say the Dominion War or anything. Yeah, and like I always that. I always thought of it of, of a lot of this stuff in a naval context, but I never thought about cloaking as submarine. Like mm. this, because I've I've only ever seen cloaking technology in a very agile. Like, you pop up and you take a shot, and you pop up and you take a shot, and all that stuff. But never like we're going under, and now there's this tense moment that we know that we're surrounded by a ship, but it can't do anything until we can see it. And it's it's like all of those moments where the camera pans in on uh, Kirk, and it's got the intense lighting over his eyes. They did that so many times, and it's like it it's a little bit corny but it's also like kind of badass where it's just a one strip of light over kirk's eyes yeah yeah um i i I like that they kind of handle it like a submarine my my problem is the way the enterprise can track the ship It, it knows the ship is moving it knows the course that it's headed on but it still can't pinpoint where the ship is while it's cloaked and later it's almost impossible for the enterprise to ever find a cloaked vessel yeah you know so there's a little bit of inconsistencies there well maybe and then there's the big inconsistency that the bird of prey has a literal bird of prey painted on it which was kind of hilarious so i mean but that was a very romulan thing the original romulan ships that's that's how they looked in fact later there's later there's some crossover between the Klingon and Romulan ships because they sold each other ships. Yeah. The the two empires. Um, So that's why, you know, in, in TNG and deep space nine, you've got the Romulan Warbird and and things of that nature. Um, And there are some bird aspects to it. The Romulan Warbird that we see in, in the TNG era 
it looks like it has a beak and it looks like it has wings and and things like that so they kind of took the paint and made it more part of the design of the ship well yeah it's just i i, I had never seen this interpretation of of that so mm. i've i've always seen like they have wings and they obviously have bird type uh you know qualities but it was just like when they finally showed it and they just had like a, a painting of a bird on it i was like ah this is what it looked like it's just a bird <laughs> see it's so weird because yeah you know, i started with this show this was how i began my star trek so these designs the the romulan warbird in this episode the d7 klingon battle cruiser you know, those are what i first picture when i think of those ships and it's the tng stuff that's kind of the, the later thought of well that's what they became um so it's kind of funny so yeah, so we have this wedding at the beginning with two characters we do not know, and then we find out after things start going wrong they both work in the phaser room. <laughs> yeah, which which is hilarious to me. So first, the phaser room itself is funny to me because they have tactical on the bridge, so tactical has to essentially be given an order by Kirk. Then tactical presses a button that notifies the phaser room, and then the phaser room has to go across. Someone has to go across the room to actually fire the phasers. <laughs> Yeah, which kind of reduces the the efficacy of everything that's happening on the bridge when you know they're just like, I mean, they're effectively project managers and which like I recognize my own role in that where it's like, oh, so they're not doing anything. They're just telling other people to do stuff. I mean, a little bit, um, but like in, in the later shows, that makes certain sense in certain areas. Like Jordy's the chief engineer and he tells people to do stuff, right? But when Worf is pressing buttons at tactical he's firing phasers he's firing torpedoes so it's interesting that there's like this whole separate room just for phaser people and there's like you know three or four people in there that are running the phasers yeah you know that they got uh they got phased out by automation in they a few did. years yeah it's, it's very true um but yeah so we we of course come back to the wedding later but it's just it's a weird way to start the episode because you're like well who are these people <laughs> You have no idea who these characters are. I mean, um, we don't really come back to the wedding. The wedding doesn't happen. Well, we come back to the room. Oh, she's yeah, in, the chapel. In after. the chapel, yeah. She, yeah. She's all. She's kind of sad, but she's you know she's tough. She's a Starfleet officer, and you know. Yeah, it's it's understood that these kind of things happen. But know. but again, it um, refutes the the mythology of of the original series that red shirts or who dies because he was yellow right mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's definitely one of those tropes that doesn't really hold any water when you pay attention you know um there's a okay. lot of non-red shirts that die in star trek well and this was such a like notable moment that only one character died and mm-hmm. it's like the the way people talk about the original series you'd think there would just be like armies and armies of of red shirts dropping like flies but it's you know not yet. Mm-hmm. Now, I think my favorite part of this episode, well, maybe tied for favorite part of this episode, is how they handle Lieutenant Styles. Is that the guy that hates Spock? He's the racist. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this, of course, this episode came out in 1966. This is post-World War II. This is Cold War era. You have a lot of prejudices against people throughout the world because of the war and other uh, other reasons of just straight up racism. Yeah. Um, 
And so again, Star Trek tackling a social issue, but you know, putting it behind the the veil of of an alien. And Styles doesn't like the way Spock looks. Spock looks like a Romulan, so he doesn't trust him anymore. It's a very racist thing. And it, this has one of you know the most famous lines in all of Star Trek, where Kirk tells him that. Um, uh, uh, what is it? Leave your prejudices in your quarters. There's no place for it on the bridge. Yeah. I, I, be- I believe is how he says it. And that line is very important to me because it shows that that's not how he wants to run his ship. That's not who he is. He's going to take an individual and he's going to act on the individual. But as far as he's concerned, if you cannot follow orders and do your, your duty free of that type of prejudice then get out well it's also the very like core underlying roddenberry ethos of the show itself of like there's a black woman on the bridge and there's an asian man on the bridge and no one's ever going to draw attention to any of it because that's just how the future is when everyone's cool and it's like this this guy's noteworthy because he's uncool and it's like all right cool let's let's make that the bad guy but at the same time, it's got to be really unrewarding to be an unrepentant racist against a race that doesn't care. <laughs> it's got to just be like, Spock, you suck. And he's like, I don't care. I don't care what you have to say. I am Spock. And it's like, shit. <laughs> now, it is interesting that they even throw the lines in there to basically tie the Romulans to the Vulcans, which is used you know, much later in Star Trek throughout the other shows, you know, unification and TNG and things of that matter, where we start to learn that the Vulcans were a very different people originally, and some of them did not want to embrace logic and lock away their emotions. And that's how we ended up with two very different species. And this is where it all began. It began in Balance of Terror right here. Yeah, there should have been a moment where they see the the commander of the, the Romulan ship on the view screen and Spock just goes, that looks exactly like my father. <laughs> well, they didn't know that yet. Yeah. So, you know, species that... are so much alike. My father is also Romulan. But it is interesting, like certain episodes early on become cornerstones for massive parts of the Star Trek mythology that get fleshed out. And this episode not only introduces the Romulan Empire for the first time, it introduces the cloak for the first time. It confirms the Romulan and Vulcan blood connection and their heritage for the first time um, and shows what, you know, what the neutral zone is and shows this cold war aspect of you know, there was a war a hundred years ago and a lot of people died and we haven't spoken to each other since we haven't seen each other since, you know, how do we handle that? Every move you make could lead to a war. And a hundred years later, the Romulans and the Federation are still not that great with each other. Well, yeah. And everything is that like that chess game of the back and forth of all of this stuff and the, the tension and the quiet moments when they're waiting for them to surface. And like you, you, you really see all of the thinking on the enemy ship. And I feel like this, I mean, I've been, been watching these in sequence, so I don't know how often this happens, but you, you not only see the enemy captain, but you, you hear his logic and his reasoning and um, you kind of get that, 
the the narration of the both the the hero and the villain being treated as protagonists in their own stories which is really good storytelling just for for anything but um like you see that context and and everything for the romulans where they're like it's like there is there is a sense to why we're doing what we're doing and in our minds this is like what we have to do to survive um mm-hmm. But then it, you know, it all ends up on that note of like, I wish we could have met under different circumstances. There's, there's so much honor being exchanged back and forth, and it's like, like when when Kirk makes a good move, like when when captains of enterprises make good moves against Klingons and stuff, you usually see the Klingons go, ah, oh, these idiots, sir, like these animals. But here you see the the enemy captain go like, this Kirk is a genius. He can read minds. He's just like being such a so complimentary to Kirk as he's fighting him. Yeah, I mean, this is a unique thing. The The Romulans were shown to be very sophisticated, very even level-headed compared to the Klingons, of course. And in this particular instance, we're, we're shown a commander who is supposed to be sympathetic, who's supposed to be flawed, and while he's an antagonist, he's not necessarily evil per se, and you can tell that the weight of his command is on his shoulders, much in the way it's weighed on on Kirk and, and even Pike in, in the pilot. We don't we know that he doesn't really want to do this anymore. He wants to go home. It's said multiple times he just wants to go home. And to know that he was beat by somebody who is worthy, a captain who's intelligent, who's experienced, who's creative almost gave him an honorable death yeah. in a way. Yeah, and that's that's a big thing. I mean, this this episode f- felt very familiar to me cuz I feel like, you know, in addition to the the Romulans as a species and the cloak and all the stuff that they kind of planted the seeds of as to what would grow into future Trek lore, um there's also just the the strong concepts of honor and of duty and of kind of the the cold war um i'm i'm done with this and i need to move on like like the the noble warrior who doesn't want to fight just all of these tropes that become i mean like foundational aspects of of future iterations of trek it it just seemed like to have have it thought out in this place but i mean of course that's all based on like war movies like this like i said earlier with the like hunt for red october and that stuff it's like this is is based on other tropes just recontextualized into sci-fi but um yeah to just to see it in place and working so well so early in the the any kind of trek at all was was fascinating for me no it's it's a really good point and I think for me, it has to do with all the seeds that this episode really lays. I mean, it doesn't just mention Romulus. It also mentions Remus. Yeah. Uh, you know, it mentions both. And that follows all the way through till Star Trek Nemesis, which could be argued to be, you know, the end of of the old way of Star Trek, you know, um, kind of signaling the end of that. It was It was almost full circle. This episode. Oh, that's a bummer. That's true, isn't it? Nemesis is the last thing of that timeline. I mean, more or less, you know, Uh, um, there's some wiggle room there, of course, if you want to really dig into it. But Nemesis, I mean, the tagline for Nemesis was a generation's final journey begins. You know, they knew that it was the end and 
uh, it comes full circle. They it's Praetor Shinzon, which a Praetor was the term used in Balance of Terror, and it's Romulus and Remus, and we get to see the Remans finally, and there's ships that are you know cloaked and and all of that. It's the, the Romulans that we see in Star Trek Nemesis are not that far removed from the ones that we see here in Balance of Terror. True. And we you also know, get young Tom Hardy. <laughs> we do get t- young Tom Hardy, yeah. Um, but I, I just it goes to show that when Star Trek had strong episodes early on, people took note of that and looked back on them later and expanded on them. So Balance of Terror being one of the higher rated episodes, the second highest rated episode of season uh, one of the original series, a lot of it was leveraged later on for more storytelling for Romulans. Yeah. And I mean, it's even though it was kind of like the the silly helmets and the the ship with a bird painted on it and all this kind of goofy stuff relative to the more serious iterations in, in next generation. It's still like, it's all there. It's like, it didn't, it didn't feel foreign to me. It, it felt like ancestral, but, but mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. And even the uniforms had some of the same pattern or similar pattern designs that you would see in the later Romulan uniforms, which your know, Romulans have always had a very distinct look that separates them from the other major species and, and civilizations that we see in Star Trek. And you can tell that there's, there's a connection here. Um, so it, it's cool. And if anything, it, it, this episode makes me a little sad because they talk about the Romulan war, which is what they had plans for in season five of enterprise If enterprise had not been canceled. Uh, they had plans to begin the Romulan war and they had just started laying the seeds for that at the end of season four. And so it would have been very interesting to see what brought about the neutral zone and the treaty that is on the verge of collapse here in balance of terror. So was the Romulan war like, world war two was it supposed to be like that that scale or like is is there a a world war two uh allegory in in the star trek timeline um the romulan war was a big deal so we still used atomic weapons um the ships were more advanced than enterprise but still nothing like what you see here in the original series and the war was was bad. I mean, the, this, this, you know, the Federation and Starfleet was mainly exploration and scientific, even though some of that gets a little confused because of the Zindi arc and stuff in, in Enterprise. But either way, they were not prepared for an all-out war against a hostile force like the Romulan Empire. So the war doesn't go particularly well. It's it's a bad war. A lot of people die. And it basically caused Starfleet Earth to become a little isolationalist. Mm. So it's a little bit more it's it's very akin to World War One, where you know we became very isolationalist after the war. And that happened. And essentially it took you know forty years or so for Starfleet to kind of venture back out into the unknown. Hmm. Interesting. So we kind of, we, we spread our wings and then they kind of knocked us back. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happened. We, we hit a wall and not a wall like the Klingons, you know, the Klingons were different. Um, But the Klingon war came later. The Klingon war was after the Romulan war. 
So the end of Enterprise was basically the dawn of the Federation. So the Federation existed before the Romulan War? Yes. And it was like the Federation versus the Romulans, or did the Romulans have anyone else on their team? Um, th- there's not a whole lot of detail on the Romulan War, unfortunately, because it was never shown mm. in canon. Um, so it's it's a little hard to tell. I wouldn't be surprised if like the Orions or the Gorn were involved, but I would I don't know. Okay, <laughs> asking too many questions. No, it's it's good stuff. I wish we had been able to see it. There were some really amazing plans for season five of Enterprise that included the refit of the NX01. Uh, to make it the SS Enterprise uh, with a secondary hull and everything. It was beautiful. So it was it was some stuff I really wanted to see. Hmm. But Maybe uh, the uh, Discovery will hit a, hit a time loop and they'll, they'll bring it out. That would be cool. So before we close out, I put a couple polls out on Twitter just to kind of gauge some people. And uh, 78% rated Balance of Terror as an A with 0% as a deer or lower because you only get four options and then for muds women it was mixed all over the place uh, but 42 percent gave it a c that was the highest amount 33 percent gave it a d or lower so people did not really care for muds women and basically the exact opposite for balance of terror people love this episode well that uh kind of goes with our our little experiment here <laughs> it does it does um anything else you want to go over before we close out for the week uh no i don't think so good good episode and a bad episode it's good good to see the good one and disappointing to see the bad one Fair i enough. imagine Fair. next week will be somewhat similar so yeah so next week we are covering space seed the con episode and miri which i actually don't think is as bad as the rating says so hopefully you'll enjoy that one more so join us next week for space seed and miri which i am excited to to watch both of those again um we uh, will be back, you know, every Friday with a new episode. We're doing this new format right now, but we'll continue to change things up and do some different things here and there. So please stick with us. If you like what we're doing or if you have any of your own comments, please let us know. We are Red Shirts and Runabouts on the Heroes Podcast Network. You can find us at heroespodcast.com and at Heroes Podcasts on Twitter and Facebook. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Blog Talk Radio, and anywhere that you can really get your podcasts. If you're Jeremy, hearing this, you know that. <laughs> right. Yeah, probably. Uh, Jeremy, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Zen Munkin, and uh, I've got another podcast on the network called Analysis, a Westworld podcast. Uh, we are on episode three this week, or we will be on Sunday. Fantastic. And I am the Star Trek Dude on Twitter and Facebook. I also co-host Screen Heroes and Gamer Heroes, two other shows on the Heroes Podcast Network, so feel free to check those out. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will be back, hopefully, with Greg next week to talk about Khan. Khan! Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, and anywhere you can use an RSS feed. Follow us on social media at Heroes Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. 
And you can also email us at contact at heroespodcasts.com. Engage. <laughs>